Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 26, 2019, and my guest is Jacob Stegenga, university lecturer in the Department of History and the Philosophy of Science at Cambridge University in England. His latest book, which is the subject of today's conversation, is Medical Nihilism. Jacob, welcome to Econ Talk. Russ, thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. This is an utterly fascinating book that begins with what seems like an essentially untenable claim that can't be true and then relentlessly makes the case for that claim that by the end of the book makes you start to wonder if, in fact, it is true. And I have to confess, as listeners will discover and recognize, that I'm sympathetic to some of the arguments in the book, many of them, in fact. But I'm surprised at how far you got me to come along with you, Jacob. So uh, let's start with what you mean by this rather daunting term, medical nihilism. Sure. So um, medical nihilism or medical nihilism is the term that I'm referring to to summarize the overall argument of the book. Um, So the book is constituted by um, many kind of smaller level arguments in each chapter, but the the overall argument I'm referring to as medical nihilism. And the conclusion of this argument is that we ought to have low confidence in the effectiveness of medical interventions um, so it's a it's a it's a skeptical thesis about how confident we should be in modern medical interventions. Well, it's, I'd say skeptical is not quite the right word. Um, it's I would say at least highly skeptical. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. So so it's a it's a very pronounced form of skepticism. It's 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 it runs deep. It's it's meant to uh, like most. Yeah, you know, like most yes. medical interventions are a bad idea. That's the way I would, um, or a surprisingly large number are a bad idea is the way I would describe it. Right. Uh, that's, that's, that's a fair description. Um, yeah. So that seems to be silly. Uh, you can see it early on that through most of history, this was clearly true. Uh, many of the cures and interventions of the past, ingesting mercury, uh, (laughs) um, bloodletting uh, and other things uh, didn't work, didn't improve the patient. In fact, often were dangerous and harmful on net. And yet you admit that most people would say, well, that was then, this is now. And of course, in the last 50 or 60 years, we've seen many, many, and even a little past that, maybe going back to the 20s in America and the world, you'd say, well, since then we've discovered science and the enlightenment and the scientific method has given us many, many great and glorious uh, health improvements, and uh, doctors are to be uh, revered, adored, as well as the people who create uh, the devices and pills that we um, take and and attach to ourselves and deal with. And yet you argue that even most of the modern ones are not so good. Uh, So first you should probably make – you do concede there are a few what you call magic bullets. So why don't you talk about what a magic bullet is and the three that you highlight in the uh, book and then why you think there are – so few after that. 
Sure. Yeah. So there's a lot packed into yeah. uh, packed into your question there. It's a really good summary of uh, of part of the motivation of the book. Um, so you're gesturing towards what I call in the book the "today is different" um, response to medical nihilism. Uh, so the idea is. Um, we have modern science, we have strict regulation, uh, we have effective pharmaceuticals. Um, so this, uh, skeptical thesis is just nowhere near as compelling as it would have been in say the 18th century. And so part of the argumentative burden of the book is to dispel the persuasiveness of some of those premises in the today is different argument. Um, it's also, as you noted, the thesis is not the kind of audacious, radical claim that there's not a single effective medical intervention. Of course there are. And I refer to the, the very best medical interventions as magic bullets. So a magic bullet is an intervention which targets the pathophysiological basis of a disease with high specificity and high potency. The term magic bullet comes from the chemist Paul Ehrlich, uh, so one of the um, most important scientists um, in the early part of the 20th century. He was looking for a cure for syphilis, and the treatment at the time was mercury. And so he was referring to this need for a chemical to bind to the bacterium that caused syphilis, so that had recently been discovered thanks to germ theory of disease. So he wanted a chemical that would bind to this bacterium, kill it, and only only interfere with that bacterium and not our the rest of our normal physiology. So that's where the term comes from. The term comes from the chemist Paul Ehrlich. He and one of his colleagues, Sahachiro Hata, ended up finding a chemical with this kind of specificity. And some people call this the first modern antibiotic. And it was later... Uh, later improved on by penicillin. So antibiotics like penicillin are magic bullets. They target disease entities with high potency and high specificity. The other example of magic bullet in, in the book is insulin for type 1 diabetes. So the, the treatment for type 1 diabetes until 1920 was starvation therapy. So children who were born with Type 1 diabetes would be starved into a coma, and they would live until maybe the age of 15 or 16, and then they would die. When Banting and Best discovered insulin as an as a intervention for, for diabetes, they, they developed an animal model of diabetes, diabetes in dogs. So they, they discovered that you could modulate, radically reverse the symptoms of, of type 1 diabetes using insulin. They just walked across the street to one of these wards with comatose children who were born with type 1 diabetes and just started jabbing the kids with insulin and the kids woke up out of their out of their comas so it's a magic bullet now penicillin and insulin aren't perfect i mean people develop resistance to penicillin some people have allergies to penicillin and other antibiotics uh, the dosing of insulin has to be very very careful for diabetics um, but nevertheless, they're they're pretty miraculous drugs. I mean, they they either eliminate the d disease entity altogether in the case of antibiotics, or in the case of drugs like insulin, they they really effectively manage the symptoms of the disease without curing the disease. But the part that was so interesting to me, and it, the 
I learned a lot from the book. Um, there's a large class of pharmaceutical interventions that I would say, after reading your book, fall into two categories broadly. That are the non the non magic bullet categories. One is that they just don't work. They might affect some measure of health, like cholesterol level, but they don't necessarily reduce heart attacks, which is what we, of course, actually care about. So there's ineffective drugs that that seem to perhaps help, but ultimately we find don't. The second group, which is the really interesting um, conceptually, are pharmaceutical interventions, drugs that aren't specific. They, because of the complexity of disease, the attempts to cure the bad part leads to too many other things going on at the same time that can't be uh, isolated. So, talk about both of those um, and uh, help 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 us understand the role of certainly of complexity and the human body in the second case because it it often it mirrors the way I think about the the macro economy. And attempts to quote cure it in uh, in economic policy. All oh, right, yeah, I, that's an insightful point. I think there's a a lot of um, physical, like conceptual similarities between trying to intervene on a, on a complex physiological system and trying to intervene on a complex social system. Um, so you have articulated one of the arguments in the book. So. Um, those interventions that aren't magic bullets, wh- what is it about these interventions that makes them not magical? What is it about them that, that um, such that they fail to live up to the standard that insulin and penicillin set? Um, just as an aside, um, I wouldn't necessarily want to say that a drug that's not a magic bullet isn't useful at all. Excellent and certainly point. some, some listeners to, to your, to your podcast and some readers of the book will say, wait a second, statins, um, might be useful. I mean, the, the empirical evidence shows that statins can lower the, the risk of heart attacks by a small amount, uh, say, you know, 1% in, a, in an at-risk population, 1% is better than 0%. So there's some utility to, to, to statins. Um, now the response to that is, well, that's, that kind of effect, effectiveness, 1% reduction in, in risk of a heart attack, is a completely different order of magnitude than the effectiveness of, of insulin and penicillin. Okay, so with that caveat aside, uh, let me answer your question. There are two general kinds of physical reasons for an intervention failing to be a magic bullet. One has to do with the complexity of the target system, as you said. So many disease entities that we're trying to intervene on have a radically complex causal basis. Uh, So intervening on one node or one causal chain in this massively complicated causal nexus won't lead to the kinds of outcomes that we want because the, the causal network can just be robust against external perturbations. Many diseases are like this. So the pathophysiological basis of heart disease or pretty much all psychiatric diseases uh, are radically complex. So that's about the complexity of the disease states. Another reason why many interventions um, fail to have the kind of specificity and potency that we want is because of the ways in which drugs work on our body. So drugs work 
as ligands. Uh, a ligand is something that binds to a receptor and changes the way that receptor works in our body. It turns out that there's a one-to-many relationship between ligands, most ligands, most drugs, and receptors. So a single drug can bind to multiple receptors. It turns out also that there's a one-to-many relationship between activated receptor and biochemical pathway. So if you turn up or turn down one receptor, that can modulate multiple biochemical pathways. And also there's a one-to-many relationship between activated biochemical pathway and physiological effects, depending on which organ or tissue the pathway is in. So there's this like cascading complexity of effectiveness from consumption of drug to physiological effect. So for these two physical reasons, um, the complexity of diseases and the complex ways in which drugs modulate our physiology, most drugs aren't magic bullets. Economist F.A. Hayek said that the curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really understand about what they imagine they can design. A quote listeners are familiar with. Um, Is it conceivable that some of these cascades of complexity will be better understood in the future and that our pharmaceutical interventions will be more successful? Or is there a certain level of complexity in the human body that you think cannot be overcome for some of these problems. This is uh, a, the question to ask, I think, uh, in response to the arguments that I put forward in the book. So there's a certain ambiguity in the thesis of medical nihilism. Uh, in, to put it in philosopher's terms, the thesis can be either an epistemological thesis or a metaphysical thesis. The epistemological thesis is... Um, our methods of science as they are today just aren't good enough uh, for us to get what, we, get what we want. The metaphysical thesis is stronger. It says you know, the way our bodies are and the way the medical, medical interventions work on our bodies is just physically such that um, magic bullets will be out of reach in principle for many diseases. Uh, I myself sit on the fence between these two positions um, but let me try to say a few words about how the development of science could possibly proceed such that we get more and more magic bullets in the future. The one obvious way is just to pursue more research for diseases that we have a track record of finding magic bullets for. So if we go back to the penicillin and insulin case, um, we can conceive of these really broadly as diseases of deficiency like, there's not enough insulin in your body, so put more in. Or scurvy is like, there's not enough vitamin C in your body, so just put some vitamin C in your body. So those are diseases of deficiency. And diseases of infection are cases in which there's something in your body that shouldn't be there. And so antibiotics work by just getting rid of those things. So those are pretty f- basic physical sim- like systems that we can intervene on. And so if we want more magic bullets, we could continue to develop those kinds of interventions. And I, I think that the most promising and, and most important line of medical research for the future will be to develop more antibiotics, in part because of the development of antibiotic resistance. So we really ha- must have in our arsenal more and more antibiotics for the future. Okay, another way in which 
we could develop our science so that we're able to develop more and more magic bullets is to learn more about the pathophysiological basis of what I'm calling complex diseases. So it could be that, say, depression, the the way we're talking about depression now is it's a complex disease. But that might just be a way to mask um, ignorance. the real nature of disease. Exactly. It might be a way to mask ignorance. So it could just be that depression is not one kind of disease, but maybe a hundred kinds of disease. So there's a hundred subtypes of disease. So the reason why SSRIs fail to be effective. And these are? Selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, like the major class of anti- antidepressants that we use. So the reason why antidepressants might essentially fail to be clinically significant now is that um, we're using you know a handful of drugs to try to intervene on a hundred subtypes of depression but as science progresses and we're able to subtype these kinds of depressions um, we'll be able to tailor drugs to those subtypes and that's one of the promises of personalized medicine personalized medicine is supposed to be um, getting a bunch of big data learning more about the physical basis of diseases and then looking for interventions to target those physical bases. Now, whether or not you're persuaded by the promise of personalized medicine in a sense depends on, uh, it goes beyond the current empirical facts. So some people are cup half empty. Some people are cup half full. Um, you might be optimistic about what the future of science will bring to medicine, or you might be more or less pessimistic. Um, and, I don't have uh, an argument to to sway you one way or the other if you're kind of <laughs> inherently optimistic or inherently pessimistic. In uh, in Hayek's 1974 Nobel Prize winning address, uh, the pretense of knowledge, he suggested we will never acquire that level of knowledge that will allow us to intervene successfully in the macro economy. Many economists disagree with that. I'm just mentioning that, and we'll put a link up to that speech, which I. Heartily recommend for skeptics everywhere. Uh, but coming back to this question of uh, – I, I want to ask two things about what you just said. One is – let's start with this um, because it's a general issue that that runs through, uh, I think, some of your claims, a problem with some of your claims. So many, many interventions. You mentioned SSRIs for antidepressants. Um, people would say, okay, they don't show up in clinical trials. But for me, it's fabulous. Recognizing that for some people, it makes them more depressed. People, I think, recognize that. Um, But for many people, once they get the right cocktail uh, or the right drug, they find they are much more capable of getting along in the world. And they would argue, and they have in the past when this kind of issue has come up on the program, they would say, you're dangerous, Jacob, because you're discouraging something that is life-saving for some people. Not everybody. Okay, we agree with that. But but it's made so many people's lives better. And, of course, many psychiatrists today uh, are not doing um, cognitive behavioral therapy. They are dispensing drugs. That's their overwhelming practice. And they think they're doing God's work. They think they're saving lives and making people's lives better. And if they don't, they just need to tweak it or find a bit different, a better variation. So how, how do you respond to that? Good. Yeah, this is a, a very important question, and um, there's a lot that can be said about it. Um, so in general, it raises the following question. What kinds of evidence should we be appealing to 
when we judge the benefits and harms of medical interventions. In evidence-based medicine, there's been a um, very you know, powerful movement in medical research to move towards promoting certain kinds of evidence and downgrading other kinds of evidence. So the, the gold standard in evidence-based medicine today is the randomized control trial and meta-analyses of randomized control trials. So a meta-analysis is like a bringing together of um, results from all of the available trials. And evidence-based medicine did this for good reason. So the way in which we made causal inferences about the benefits and harms of medical interventions before evidence-based medicine was to appeal to things like um, expert opinion, uh, background theoretical knowledge, patient anecdotes. <laughs> anecdotes, yeah, exactly, case reports. Um, and the community, statisticians, epidemiologists, uh, regulators, recognized that these forms of evidence were shot through with biases. And so uh, as medical research pro progressed through the 20th century and now into the 21st century, the methods for testing the benefits and harms of drugs got better and better and better um, in, in, insofar as they controlled for more and more of these biases. Okay, now what about first-person reports? What about first-person anecdotes? Like, this drug worked for me, or this drug worked for um, a good friend of mine or a or patient of mine. My patients, yeah. Yeah, my patients. So what are we supposed to say about these kinds of cases? Um, the short answer is we should approach first-person reports with a huge amount of cautionary skepticism. And this is for three fundamental reasons that all work together. The first reason is that diseases have a natural course of progression. That is, they have a kind of a life of their own. So symptoms get better and worse over time for many diseases. Some diseases have a natural course of progression in which the symptoms gradually de decrease until they're gone. This is, for instance, like illustrated by the common cold. Some diseases fluctuate uh, with uh, symptom severity over time. So for instance, like bipolar disorder or depression, uh, symptoms are worse at some times, better at other times. Um, and People tend to seek treatment from their physician when their symptoms are especially bad. Now, if you seek treatment when your symptoms are especially bad, then merely the passage of time alone entails that your symptoms will get better in the future. For these diseases that have a fluctuating um, severity of symptoms or, or a gradually de decreasing severity of symptoms. So that's problem number one, natural course of disease. Problem number two is the infamous placebo effect. So the placebo effect involves, you know, the expectation that you'll get better because you've seeked treatment from a healthcare professional, in fact, causes you to get better, uh, but not via the um, biochemical activity of the drug that you've consumed, but via some sort of mysterious psychological yeah. phenomena that we're not, we don't actually understand very well at this point. Um, so that's problem number two, two, placebo effect. Problem number three is a well-known fallacy of reasoning 
that um, that philosophers call confirmation bias. Yeah. So the confirmation bias. The narrative fallacy also, yeah. Is, is that another word for it? Well, it fallacy? is. Yeah, you tell yourself a story yeah. and then everything fits in yeah. the story. It's a version of confirmation exactly. bias. Exactly, yeah. So confirmation bias in general is paying more attention to the evidence that confirms your beliefs and ignoring evidence that disconfirms your beliefs. And we have a massive amount of evidence that shows that Typical people uh, suffer from confirmation bias in really big ways, but also physicians, patients, and even you know <laughs> professors, economists, <laughs> economists. Yeah. So, so we, the royal we, suffer from confirmation bias. So these three problems together: the natural course of of diseases, the placebo effect, and confirmation bias entail that we should treat first person reports regarding the effects of interventions with a huge amount of skepticism. Now, I should I should add the following caveat though. In medicine, there's been a long tradition of neglecting the patient's yeah. reports yep. um, because medicine, at least sometimes, has been kind of imperialistic in its in its attitudes. Um, so the physician is the educated one. They know about your disease. You don't know anything about your disease. You're sick. Maybe you're a woman. Maybe you're disabled. And um, the you know like the white upper middle class elderly male physician knows best. And so there's been a tendency to push back against this model of medicine. So medicine should listen more, should hear the patient, um, and should respect what the patient is reporting. I agree with all that. So, no doubt. Yeah. <laughs> medicine, medicine should, you know, we uh, like the physicians should be listening very carefully to our patients and respecting what patients report. However, when it comes to causal inference, that's a completely different ballgame. And I think we ought to be uh, maintaining really, really strict evidential standards when it comes to deciding um, did this um, drug have the following effect? So let's let's talk about side effects um, generally because it's they're they're related to this issue of complexity and it it gets it something I didn't feel you emphasized enough. So one of the themes of the book is that many of the things that we think work actually don't. Many of the things that we think work don't work very well, and many of the things that work a little bit uh, have side effects that actually are negative and therefore offset or roughly uh, counterbalance the, the the good effects. And you make a very persuasive case. I hope we'll get to it. But if not, I want to say it here because it's very important that there is a strong set of forces that cause us to underestimate the harm of interventions while overestimating the benefits. However, just because something is harmful doesn't mean you shouldn't. I mean, just because something has uh, side effects doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It could be that it's worth it still. So talk about that issue first of all, uh, of whether uh, of, of the importance of side effects. And, and I just want to complicate it a little bit by mentioning that you don't talk very much about cancer in the book. Cancer treatments, I mean, are, most people recognize that our current level of cancer treatments are, are harmful to a person. <laughs> they're, they're destructive. They're, they often have uh, life-damaging effects even when the cancer is cured, so-called cured or in remission. So we understand that cancer drugs are uh, unpleasant in, and basically a form of poison, and we just hope it poisons more of the bad stuff and not so much of the good stuff. But 
we also understand that that's not necessarily true. So talk about this issue of trade-offs between benefits and costs and risk and return. And in particular, if you can add some some mention of the cancer issue, because I, I didn't notice as much about that in the book. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So there's this really important set of questions and there's a lot going on there. Um, Just on cancer, I'll I'll say parenthetically, I want to, I'd like to uh, plug uh, a book of one of my colleagues, Anya Plutinsky, who's just published a book, um, which is uh, like a philosophical study of the science and medical treatment of cancer. Uh, And it's an excellent book and one of the few sort of like philosophical um, discussants on cancer. Um, so that's that's a book um, worth looking at. Author's name um, again? Plutinsky, P-L-U-T-Y-N-S-K-I. Got it. Uh, at, uh, she works at Washington University in St. Louis. Um, so, um, right. Almost all, if not all, medical interventions have harmful side effects. But of course, that doesn't entail, as you said, that doesn't entail that um, that's an argument against using them because their benefits might anyways outweigh the harms. And so at the end of the day, um, somebody has to decide if a particular medical intervention um, has benefits that outweigh the harms. And I think that's, that's, that's uh, a definitive general uh, point. Um, so, so the mere presence of harms um, we, we, we just have to accept. Uh, and I think the, the case of cancer drugs is, is illustrative. Um, I, I like the way you put that. Um, medical research is um, tuned in a variety of ways to hunt for benefits of interventions at the expense of hunting for harms. Um, so, so even if we agree that we are going to have to be weighing up the benefits and harms of of medical interventions, the actual evidence that we have available to us to do that weighing is systematically skewed towards overestimating benefits and and underestimating harms. Um, To actually articulate the argument um, uh, would take me some detail. We we, we can do that if you want, but that's We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Keep, Keep going. Yeah. Okay. So ultimately, we need to do this kind of weighing up of benefits and harms. And... Uh, this raises a, a lot of questions, like uh, how should we how should we do that weighing, and who should be doing that weighing, uh, and on what evidential basis should we base that weighing? Um, these are questions that really haven't been thought through with very much uh, without with these are questions that haven't been thought nearly as carefully enough as you would expect. So, just to give an example. Um, to get a new drug approved by the FDA, the, the main evidential requirement is to have two positive randomized control trials in which the drug demonstrates benefit compared to placebo or competitor drug. And that benefit could be really, really small. Now, of course, there is also a safety assessment um, at this stage. But the actual evidence that's available to properly assess the safety of an experimental drug is pretty thin at this stage in the research life of a drug. The vast, vast majority of evidence that we get on the harmful side effects of drugs occurs after the drug has been approved for 
public consumption. Um, and at that point, there's no incentive to do any more random, careful randomized trials. And so you, when you posed this question, you related it back to the issue of whether or not we should trust first-person anecdotes. Now, this is crucially important because the majority of evidence that we have on the harms of drugs amounts to a collection of first-person anecdotes. So if a patient thinks that they are suffering a particular side effect from a drug, they may or may not have a conversation with their physician about it. If they do, the physician has to decide if the patient is like an, a reliable reporter of this effect of the drug. And then the physician has to um, basically upload the harm to a database of, uh, in which information on harms is collected. And then from that database, scientists try to make inferences about whether or not the drugs are in fact causing such and such harms. So it's a collection of first-person anecdotes. Um, and it's only in rare cases in which, after approval, there's a carefully controlled randomized trial done to test uh, for harms. But you give many examples in the book of harms that are so severe that drugs later that come out where the effects are so obviously harmful that the drugs are taken off the market or uh, the company is sued and because they had they they knew of the harm and didn't reveal it. Um, it's not like once. <laughs> it's often is how I would describe it. It's deeply disturbing. Um, but I, I, I on this issue of side effects. Some of these side effects, I never really understood it until I read your book, and, and maybe I still don't. But my assumption was, you know, people are different. This drug might make me nauseous, uh, but not you. It might make me tired, but not you. It might make me lose my appetite, but not you. Those are relevant, but the bigger issues are things like it might stop my heart, <laughs> but not you. And some of the reasons that it stops your heart is because that – cascade of complexity you talked about earlier we don't fully understand we have this romance i think about doctors as sort of scientists you know carefully calibrating the impact of this thing i'm injecting a lot of it's nothing like that and uh, it was deeply um enlightening unfortunately thanks for saying that yeah um right so um there's, there are just so many problems when it comes to the detection of harms, like the, the careful, reliable, controlled experimental study of the harms of, um, of drugs. An example, it's, it's, this, this example is not in the book, um, but it's kind of a funny example. So a couple of years ago, the FDA approved a drug for what, what was at the time called uh, hypoactive sexual desire disorder in women. So basically women with low libido, women with, who weren't enjoying sex. And um, so they would be diagnosed. Uh, this was in the dsm four. They would be diagnosed with this disease. And um, for a long time, there was no drug available to treat this um, disease. Of course, there was a, a kind of a male equivalent in Viagra and drugs like it. Um, and this, the financial success of Viagra motivated the hunt for a female version. Um, a drug was tested called flibanserin, 
Uh, it was initially rejected by the FDA uh, because the positive effects were really tiny and there were some um, noticeable harmful effects and it reacted poorly with alcohol. Um, and then it was finally accepted because the FDA received some pressure from patient advocacy groups. Um, there was a kind of, uh, there was a campaign called Even the Score. Uh, yeah. the, the idea was, well, you men have your drug for sexual desire, uh, so we should have ours too. It turns out that, that that patient advocacy group was funded by the company that made the drug. Um, okay, so this is a kind of long-winded uh, story about harms. There was a study of the harmful side effects of flibensarin, and in that study, the majority of subjects were men. <laughs> um, so it's a, it's a kind of funny example of how uh, medical research um, sets up the conditions under which when a physician in the, in the wild, in real life, who's dealing with a real patient, um, has to base uh, prescription decisions on a, on a set of evidence which might not be relevant to the patient that they have in front of them. Well, that's a semi-comic example, though it's tragicomic, obviously. The, the more general cases that you document in the book are the fact that in clinical trials, there's a natural incentive on the part of the pharmaceutical company to work with healthier people, work with younger people, keep out the elderly, keep out uh, super, you know, children. And yet, once the drug is approved, the target audience uh, expands from the group that was tested to the general population for a whole bunch of reasons, economic, human, uh, financial. And then, as a result, a lot of the harms show up that couldn't have been observed in the trial because the trial didn't have the full population in it. Exactly, yeah. And there's a, there's a kind of general and principled way to put this point. So... Randomized trials that are um, designed and performed to get regulatory approval exclude subjects with particular characteristics. And those characteristics are um, um, age, so elderly people are excluded, uh, people with other diseases, people on other drugs. And we have really good empirical evidence that shows that those very features increase the harms of drugs. So... Um, uh, an 80-year-old um, on a drug will experience more harms from that drug than a 50-year-old on that drug. So we know that age, comorbidity, and so-called polypharmacy, being on multiple drugs, um, itself modulates the harmfulness of a new drug. So if you exclude those people from trials, I mean, those are the very people that end up taking new drugs, the, the elderly, people with multiple diseases, and so on. And so we have a principle, we can just make a principled prediction that um, trials are systematically underestimating the harm profile of, um, of medical interventions. It, you know, in, in the book, I, um, I, I'm sort of facetious about this, but we talk about um, um, the safety of drugs, and uh, there's a lot of um, uh, talk about the safety profile of drugs, but this is a kind of like Orwellian um, misnomer. Um, <laughs> um, really, we should be talking about the, the harms of, of drugs. And so I found that very difficult to swallow, bad metaphor, talking about pills. But uh, I, I think it's really important as an economist to come to grips with this because as an economist, I've always taken the view that, well, of course, all things are 
there's no such thing as a safe drug. And this whole FDA thing about safety is just an intellectual uh, sham. Uh, of course, things have side effects. Life's about trade-offs. And, um, of course, when you take a drug that's going to help you, there may be some costs besides monetary costs, which are increasingly small for most patients these days, which is another problem we've talked about many times here. But the point is that I take a drug to help me cure some issue I have. And, of course, it could raise the risk of something else. It could have lifestyle challenges like fatigue or nausea or whatever. And so I've always said this whole idea of safety is a mistake. It's silly. We don't want a perfectly safe drug. If we did, we wouldn't take anything. And yet what I've learned from your book, which is um, a little bit alarming, is that that's true, but the data that we have and our impression of the evidence is not nearly as clean as we would think it is in evaluating those trade-offs. In other words, sure, there's trade-offs. They're just a lot worse than you might than they actually appear to be because the incentives for, for collecting the benefits are very high and the incentives for being honest about the harm are really low. So it looks like, yeah, there's a cost to this, but it's worth it may turn out not to be the case. Yeah, exactly. So that that's uh, exactly a component of uh, the argument for medical nihilism. And so, and one way that um, that we could um, offer a, a kind of different angle towards the the general argument is as, is as follows: Over the last generation or so, trials have in fact gotten better and better and better. Um, in that they have, for for a, for a whole variety of reasons. They've controlled for various biases when it comes to the detection of benefits. So, so in short, the epistemic reliability of trials when it comes to the detection of benefits has gotten better and better and better. And a result of this is that the measure benefits. Effect, uh, well, actually, uh, no. <laughs> the result is um, measured a measured decrease in the effectiveness of drugs. So, the better trials get the smaller the effect sizes are observed in trials. Um, and so there's an inverse correlation between trial quality and measured effect size in the trial. Now, you might just extrapolate that into the future, so no trial is perfect. So if trials get better and better and better in the future, <laughs> uh, measured effect sizes on the benefits will get smaller and smaller and smaller. Now, if we take the discussion that we were just having about harms and apply a similar kind of logic um, we know, based on you know, arguments that I've given in the book, that the, our current evidential basis for um, assessing harms radically underestimates harms. If our evidential basis got better at detecting harms, um, we would detect more harms, and we just extrapolate that into the future. So the, the, the better and better and better trials got at detecting harms, the more harmful um, drugs would look. So on the one hand, benefits are going down as trials get better, and harms are going up. That's a kind of general and principled argument for medical nihilism. Well, let's talk about the FDA a little bit because you give a number of examples in the book where the FDA approved something where there were numerous trials that found no effect. <laughs> and then there's like, oh, there's a couple that found an effect, so they approved it. And it raises the possibility, and I think you explicitly say this, that the FDA is too lenient in approving drugs which is goes against a long uh, history in economic research of claiming that the FDA is too t tough 
uh, that the hurdles for drug approval and the cost of drug approval are so large that uh, Sam Peltzman, for example, famous study showed that showed I retract that word. That's a word I'd never use. Should never use. No one should ever use. It's a study that found whether it's true or not. Of course, is it is a tough question to answer, but found. Uh, that thousands of people have died because the FDA took so long to approve drugs that were helpful. You were coming along and saying the FDA is too lenient. There are many cases where the people involved with the FDA decision have a financial incentive, either in conducting the trials or in assessing the trials, and you're you're concluding the FDA is too lenient. Is that is that a correct summary of your view? And uh, how would you relate it to the claims by economists that the FDA is too too slow in approving important drugs? Yeah, good. So so broadly construed, that is my view. Although the issue is complicated, and I, I should say that um, when I'm talking about regulatory standards in the FDA, I'm only focusing on the evidential standards. So. Um, the, the the barrier that a company has to get over when it comes to the evidence. Um, there are a whole bunch of other regulatory standards, like like standards that have to do with the actual manufacturing of the pharmaceutical. And I, I don't know anything about those standards, and my argument doesn't touch those. So it could be that um, some of the for some of those standards, like the like how many times a day does the factory have to be cleaned or something like that. Um, uh, you know, I've got nothing to say about yeah. that. They, they might be they might be too stringent. But when it comes to the evidential standards, um, my argument is that the evidential standards are far too low. They're far too easy to get a drug which has a negative benefit harm profile um, approved. Um, so the standard, the evidential standard, currently is and typically. A new medical intervention has to be tested in two randomized control trials, and in those trials, the drug has to be better than placebo or better than a competitor drug. And how much better? That's not part of the standard. Um, according to what kind of statistical inference, that's not part of the standard. Um, as long as it's a so-called phase three RCT, which means that there's got to be a certain number of subjects, there has to have been phase two RCTs, which are a little bit smaller. So you've got two phase three positive RCTs, the drug gets approved. And that is far, far too low of a standard. Now, what about the, the argument from economists that um, people are dying because drugs aren't getting on the market soon enough? And it's not just economists, I should say. There's also um, patient advocacy, advocacy groups that have argued for this. And the most famous case is during the um, drug trials for HIV, uh, activists were arguing that the FDA was moving too slowly. Yeah. There, was a, there was a drug that was potentially lifesaver, and you know, people were dying of AIDS. And um, so they pushed the FDA to hurry up. It's a famous case uh, in this, in this wow. domain. Um, my, my, the short answer is that it presupposes that there's a pipeline of many life-saving drugs that are just getting through the pipeline slowly because the FDA is dragging their feet or they're you know, raising um, regulatory standards too high. 
And so rather than getting a drug approved in two years, it takes eight years to get a drug approved. And during those intervening six years, um, people's lives could have been saved, um, but they're not. Well, the argument, the overall argument of the book is that there's not such a pipeline. Where are these life-saving drugs? In the last two generations of medicine, really in the last 50 years, there's been a tiny, tiny handful of drugs that have um, consistently increased the life of the, the, the lifespan of people suffering from particular diseases. Gleevec is one example. Uh, HIV drugs are another example. These are just a tiny, tiny handful of examples of drugs like this. Um, now, and moreover, for diseases which are clearly lethal, if um, the FDA does have a program which allows prescription of drugs before they've passed this two positive RCT standard. Um, now that there are regulatory and administrative constraints on this program, but the short story is if a physician has a patient who is dying of a particular disease, like some form of cancer, and they know that there's an experimental drug in the pipeline that can target this disease, even if the drug hasn't been approved by the kind of standard of um, the two, two positive RCT standard, that physician can nevertheless approve the drug. So this argument doesn't, the argument from the economists that the FDA standard is killing people doesn't carry much weight for those, for those reasons. Um, I think you could, you could go even further and say um, the economist's standard would kill just orders of magnitude more people <laughs> um, because um, more harmful drugs would get through the regulatory um, um, standard and thereby killing a lot of people. So a, a good example is rosiglitazone. Rosiglitazone was a drug for type 2 diabetes. It was on the market for a number of years. In the United States, in fact, it's uh, as last I checked, it's still available. Um, and in 2007, a uh, meta-analysis was done which suggested that in the handful of years that the drug had been on the market, it, it had caused something like 70,000 heart attacks. Um, so, you know, so ultimately, we're faced with a trade-off. The, the, the higher the regulatory standard, the fewer drugs are, that are going to get on the market. Will that entail that more people suffer or die um, because of the fewer drugs? That's not, it's not so obvious to me. Of course, operating in the background, which we haven't talked about, is the fact that many, many of these drugs are not paid for by the patients. Their incentive to be careful about taking these drugs certainly is there because they don't want to die and they don't want to take have side effects, but there's no financial incentive often because they're not paying for them. Uh, that's happening around the world, of course, as well, not just in the United States. Um, it's really fascinating. Uh, now, we had we had um, Adam Sifu, uh, C-I-F-U, Sifu on the program, uh, talking about his book with uh, Vinay Prasad, Ending Medical Reversal. The theme of that book is that uh, Many, many things that come to market, interventions, not just pharmaceuticals, but various techniques for ameliorating pain or, or repairing damage to the body through various innovative techniques that work in observational studies where you take a group of people, you take data, and you know something about people who've had this treatment and you see what happened to them. 
those studies work out pretty well. But then when you do the randomized control trial, you find out they actually don't work because you can then control in a more effective way for the differences between the populations that get the procedure and those that don't. And you've discovered that actually it either doesn't work at all or it actually is harmful. And that, that's also a disturbing book. Um, but I've always thought until I read your book that, well, observational studies, again, that's like the problems of epidemiology and regression analysis and economics cause trying to tease out causal relationships and observe data in, in complex systems. They don't work very well. They're not often replicated. But but an experiment, a randomized control trial, that's different. And what you argue in the book is that in both randomized control trials and in meta-analyses where you look, you aggregate randomized control trials, uh, which, which would seem to be even better because you have even more data, that in those studies, there's a problem of what you call malleability, which is deeply related to the problem of p-hacking. P-hacking is the problem that occurs in observational studies where because there's a certain standard of statistical significance, people are biased or fraudulent, but mostly just biased in rejecting certain decisions along the way. There's too many degrees of freedom for the researcher. It's what Andrew Gelman uh, calls the garden of forking paths. Um, there's just too many decisions. And so through no fault of fraud, they just find out that things work when in fact they're not replicated. They can't be replicated. Huge problem in psychology today. Talked about it with Brian Nozick. Um, but again, I've always thought, but that doesn't happen in, in randomized control trials. It's certainly not in meta-analyses. So you remind me that that's not the case. So talk about why that is. Yeah. So um, first of all, yeah, the comparison between observational studies and randomized trials is a, an interesting illustration of the, of the point um, we were getting at earlier, namely the, the better met, that methods get the the less <laughs> interventions look effective. So there's there's a trope in evidence based medicine which which uh, illustrates this basically. So you you see this very often in um, the the literature um, about evidence based medicine. Physicians will say you know, we were using such and such intervention uh, for decades uh, when I went through medical school, and then finally we did a randomized trial and we learned that um, that intervention is actually useless. Yep. Uh, so there's just a, you know. A, a, countless number of these cases. Um, so the, the, the basic idea is um, these pre-randomized trial methods were biased and they were suggesting that interventions were effective. And then the randomized trials uh, come along and suggest that, in fact, these interventions are ineffective. So the better the methods get, the worse the interventions look. Um, now, okay, but does that mean that randomized trials and meta-analyses are perfect? Are they like the kind of method that you know comes down to us from God and just like truth. speaks the truth to us? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there are better and worse randomized trials and better and, wor better and worse meta-analyses, um, but there are just a whole number of ways in which randomized trials and meta-analyses can be shot through with biases. And that's, uh, um, you know, the, the arguments that, show that make up about a third of the book. So it would take me too long to sort of illustrate all of the, all of the different ways in which randomized trials can be biased. You mentioned p-hacking and, um, um, there are, there are practices that have the same look and feel as p-hacking that occur in trials. Um, one is to make a bunch of measurements in 
a trial and then only report <clears throat> a subset of those measurements. Um, there was an interesting study done by a German regulatory group. What they did was they they took a one year window and they they sorted all of the interventions that had been submitted to the regulatory agency during this one year window. And they went back to the um, pre registration plans of the trials that were deployed to test these interventions, and they just counted the number of outcomes that were planned to be measured in those trials. And then they went to the corresponding publications and counted how many of those outcomes um, had data that were then published in the articles. And the publication rate of measured outcomes was about 26%. So um, the short story is you can design a trial, measure 100 things in the trial, and then just publish an article which um, only reports 20 of those measurements. That's a kind of p-hacking. Um, so, so this kind of malleability exists in trials. Of course, there's publication bias as well. So this was what I was just talking about was publication bias of particular outcomes. But if you uh, own the rights to a new pharmaceutical and you want to show that it's effective, you can perform 20 trials on that pharmaceutical and just publish the two trials that show a small beneficial um, beneficial um, effect. This phenomenon of publication bias in medical research has been extremely widespread, um, at least in the last generation or so. Now, shocked to hear that. I don't understand that. So, explain. In my my thinking is. There's two pieces to that. One is you say you can measure, you're going to measure 100 things and you only report 26, but aren't there usually like one or two things that are really important, like not getting a heart attack or the cancer disappears? So I'm not quite sure, or I'm not suicidal in the case of antidepressants. I'm not quite yeah. sure how I can play that game when I'm trying to tell the FDA I need that drug. And then the second question is, doesn't the FDA, when I register a trial, don't they get all those now that information, how do I get away with doing 20 trials and only publishing two? Yeah, good. So both both good questions. So um, on the first, yeah, medical scientists have what they call like the primary outcome that they're measuring. And the primary outcome, now we have the pre-registration of trials, as you said, has to the trial pre-registration has to happen either um, in some public database where journals and regulators can go and see like, was this um, trial pre-registered? Um, and in those um, pre-registration description of the experiment that's going to be done, um, the scientists have to stipulate what the primary outcome is going to be. It turns out that there's there's second-order empirical evidence that looks at how effective these pre-registration practices are and the extent to which scientists follow the pre-registration plans and the extent to which scientists stick to the, measuring the primary outcome. And the results are shocking. So... For instance, one group looked at randomized trials in the very best medical journals. These are like the Lancet, the Journal of the American Medical Association, the New England Journal of Medicine, the British Medical Journal. These are like the absolute pinnacle of medical journals in the world. And they, they, they looked at trials in a particular temporal window. I think it was like one year. And they compared the publications to the pre-registration plans and found massive disparities between the pre-registration plans and the trials, even, even when it come, came to the primary outcome. So switching what they called the primary outcome happened in about half of these trials. Um, so um, 
so so outcome switching occurs rapidly in medical research. We might hope that pre-registration plans um, could be used and enforced, but um, there's been a lot of wrangling about what what jurisdiction should be responsible for the um, storing and publishing of pre-registration plans and then enforcing enforcing the sticking to them when it comes to um, publication or regulation. And so far, the, so far there's just a lot of looseness. So for instance, journals for a while said, journal editors got together and said, okay, we're not going to publish trials unless they've been pre-registered. But it turns out that that wasn't stuck to. So journals, journals were publishing trials that weren't pre-registered. Um, when it comes to the regulation, as far as I know, regulators like the FDA do get access to a large amount of information that doesn't get included in trials. This includes like patient-level data, even if that patient-level data wasn't, didn't end up in a publication. Um, so regulators can get access to this data, and in an ideal world, they would be able to use that data in a way which guided their regulatory decisions. Um, yeah. But you're saying they don't regularly do so? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so the typical practice is to approve when there is the the two positive RCTs that are found. Um, there's and you know you that means that there's twelve others that that aren't positive and they just ignore that. With the case of rosiglitazone, there had been something like 45 randomized trials done testing the benefits of rosiglitazone, and they were also measuring some harms. And one of the harms was, does rosiglitazone cause heart attacks? Um, of these, This is for treatment of... Um, type 2 diabetes. Yes, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So of those 45 trials, um, about 15 had been published um, anyways... Rosiglitazone was approved for clinical use. An academic came along, Steve Nissen, and tried to do a meta-analysis on the harms of rosiglitazone. He wanted he tried to ask the question: Well, does rosiglitazone in fact cause heart attacks, and if so, by how much? So he tried to get all the data from GlaxoSmithKline, and they refused. But because GlaxoSmithKline had settled a lawsuit about a, a previous case, Paxil, um, they had been forced to create a database of all of their trials. And so via this route, Nissen was able to get access to um, the data from all of these trials, both published and unpublished. So not just you know, the 15 published ones, but all 45. So he and a, and a co-author did a meta-analysis, and they found that... Um, Rosiglitazone does increase the risk of heart attack by, by a really serious amount. They, they submitted the manuscript um, of their meta-analysis to the New England Journal of Medicine for publication. And the story has a kind of perversely funny twist. A peer reviewer at the New England Journal of Medicine faxed a copy of the manuscript to somebody in GlaxoSmithKline and that generated a flurry of internal memos. And one of the internal memos, a, a journalist got their hands on, on one of these memos. 
And um, one of those memos said, okay, Nissen has discovered what we at GlaxoSmithKline and what the FDA already know, namely uh, rosiglitazone um, causes an increase in heart attacks by such and such percent. Um, so this memo was really revealing. It, it suggested that GlaxoSmithKline had already done their own meta-analysis based on this unpublished data, um, and they had shared that information with the FDA, um, and there, no regulatory decision um, had been had been made after that. Um, so, you know, it's it's, it's a really interesting. Yeah. It's a compelling case in which the regulator um, had access to um, either the full set of data or the you know meta-analysis of the full set of data. Um, and anyways, um, had, did not change their regulatory stance. But it's conceivable they shouldn't have, right? It's conceivable that the benefits from reducing or whatever it did for type 2 diabetes outweighed, us, say, a small risk of a heart attack. You wouldn't want to argue that because there's a risk of a heart attack, you should never, never take the drug. That's absolutely right, yeah. So I agree with the point that you made earlier. I mean, all drugs have um, uh, potentially harmful side effects. Some of those side effects might be very serious, like heart attack and, and death. Um, and the mere existence of uh, one of these uh, side effects doesn't entail that the that the drug shouldn't be approved. Um, that that's absolutely right. Yeah, but of course, what matters is um, can we do can we make a reliable inference about the um, benefit harm ratio? Yeah, and the the. The point you're making, which is when I emphasize is that we didn't have the full information at the time that decision was made, which would certainly be wrong. Uh, it's a bad idea. Um, now, I'm a skeptic about empirical work in economics, and I get criticized a lot for it. And I always make it clear that uh, I'm not against evidence. I'm not against data. Uh, what I'm against is the overconfidence that economists sometimes have in data that's generated in complex systems. And in particular, that I argue that the ability of statistics to tease out those effects is problematic. And for that, I get often called to as being anti-science. Um, and of course, my defense is, no, I'm in favor of science. Good science. <laughs> different, Do you different. have in mind like, um, empirical economics, like the, the, the randomized trial movement in the MIT poverty lab, this, this kind of uh, uh, work? That would be one example. Um, it comes up a lot in all kinds of areas. It comes up in, say, evaluating the minimum wage. It comes up in evaluating the effect of government spending on fighting unemployment. Uh, in the case of the randomized control trial part of economics, it comes up when you know people will say uh, in the effect of altruism movement, uh, we just have to figure out what works as if that was something that we know how to do. Uh, we don't. I'm very, very in favor of funding things that work rather than things that don't work. Some of the things that we thought worked evidently uh, don't, despite their being uh, shown in randomized control trials to work in, in the development literature and anti-poverty. Um, but I want to read a sec. I want to read uh, two paragraphs from your book uh, that I think say this very well. In your your case, uh, it's near the end of the book. It says you write the following quote: "Anti-science sentiments about medicine are widespread. For example, the anti-vaccine movement, prominently associated with a single publication." that suggested that the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine can cause autism, which has been thoroughly discredited, has led many parents to not vaccinate their children, putting their own children and others at risk. One might worry that the view presented in this book contributes to irrational anti-science sentiments. However, one would have to seriously misinterpret the message of the book to portray it this way. 
to make the master argument compelling. Throughout this book, I've appealed to high-quality science. The trouble with so much of medical research is not science per se, but poor reasoning based on low-quality science that suffers from many systematic biases exacerbated by financial conflicts of interest, close quote. That's a fabulous summary of, I think, what your book's trying to do and what I feel good economics should be trying to do. Do you want to add anything to that? Thanks. Thanks for bringing this quote out. Yeah, um, I am often asked uh, a question um, that motivates this kind of uh, response that I that I'm giving there. So some people worry that by being critical of mainstream medicine and the kind of scientific basis of, of mainstream medicine, that I'm lending a hand to those people who want to develop implausible alternatives, like you know homeopathy or the anti-vaccine movement or you know, like different kinds of religious opposition to particular kinds of medical interventions. And um, my response is. I don't, I don't align myself with any of those movements. Um, the arguments in this book would apply to those movements way, in a way stronger fashion than they do to mainstream medicine itself. Um, so this book is about increasing the quality of science um, in medicine. Uh, it's, not, it's not an anti-science book at all. It's a, it's a pro-science book. It's, it's trying to argue that medicine should be more scientific than it is. And I should just add as, as an important footnote – we spent most of this conversation, almost all of it, on pharmaceuticals, but the argument goes way beyond the pharmaceutical area. Um, well, that's that's a that's a. Um, I'm I'm glad you think so, um, <laughs> and I'm sometimes criticized for this uh, in my um, among my colleagues. So, my colleagues uh, note that I've been focusing on pharmaceuticals. Um, I'm calling the book medical nihilism, but, um, you know, most of the examples and most of the arguments are framed around pharmaceuticals. Well, what about surgery? What about radiology? What about, um, say early detection screening programs for you know diseases like cancer? Uh, I'm not talking about screening programs or surgery or vaccines or radiology or, um, I don't have very many examples of those in the book at all. And what I, what I say in response to this, line of questioning is, um, um, well, you know, we often give advice to graduate students to pick a focused thesis <laughs> and not try to be overly ambitious in, yep. in, in a book. And that's part of my, that's part of my strategy here. So I think that some of the arguments that I make could be extended to domains of medicine that go beyond pharmaceuticals. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you think so. Um, so, for instance, maybe certain aspects of surgery, say, or um, or disease screening programs. This is um, something that I've started to write a little bit about. Um, but the the, the fine grain details about how those arguments would go, I think, would be a little bit different. So, for instance, the financial incentives in play in the domain of pharmaceuticals are just so fantastic that I think that nudges the biases um, more than they would in another domain of medicine in which the financial incentives weren't quite so astonishing. Um, I don't know about that. Uh, you know, uh, and when everything looks like, uh, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And if you're a surgeon, <laughs> uh, yeah. it strikes, it's shocking to me how often surgery is recommended by surgeons, uh, strangely enough. I, I yeah. So I think that's important. I don't think it's unimportant. And, right. and the, the point you Fair made enough. earlier, which is extremely hard to remember, that 
many things get better by themselves or with the passage of time uh, is very challenging for most of us to remember. And I can't tell you how many people have told me they were improved or cured or helped by Procedure X. And in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, yeah, but it may have gotten better anyway. Yeah, so so that general line. I mean, if um, I, I guess I would want to offer one of a kind of closing comment. Um, I think some people will will read this book or, or or listen to your podcast and think, well, that's an interesting idea, but I'm not totally persuaded, um, and that's perfectly fine with me. What I hope is the the big picture argument in the book, what I'm calling the master argument, and then the particular chapter level arguments at least offer people a way to think about different domains of medicine and particular medical interventions more critically. And I certainly hope that that audience includes physicians and policymakers and regulators. Um, so, so while I hope that I convince people that the thesis is persuasive and compelling, short of that, I hope that it at least offers people a sort of set of tools and a, an argumentative strategy to think carefully and critically about medicine and about the evidence that's available for our most widely consumed medical interventions. Yeah, as you say, you're not anti. You're not anti-intervention. You're pro being careful. I, I want to close with your uh, interest in gentle, what you call gentle medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to read you a quote from the book and let you um, talk about it. And you say, quote, gentle medicine is not the audacious proposal that physicians should not intervene at all. We have a few magic bullets in our arsenal and we should use them. Rather, gentle medicine is the more modest proposal that physicians should intervene less, perhaps much less than is presently the case. And we should try to improve health with changes to our lives and to our societies. End of quote. Right. So thanks for this quote. Um, there's a few underlying ideas behind gentle medicine. Um, um, when I was starting out on this, uh, writing this book um, years ago, <laughs> I tore my uh, ACL, a ligament in the knee, playing tennis. And uh, my, my treating physician called himself a non-interventionist. What do you mean a non-interventionist? I tore a ligament in my knee. <laughs> I fix don't want it. my knee back. Fix it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Fix it. Um, and so, you know, of course, I did what everybody would do. I read on the internet about the various treatment options. Um, there's a very standard surgical procedure to repair the ligament. It's a it's a big industry, ten billion dollars a year in the United States, repairing torn ACLs. Um, but my treating physician said, "Look, recently there have been a couple of high quality trials that." compared uh, exercise and stretching and physiotherapy. Um, that's one treatment regime. So it's a kind of stretching and physiotherapy regime to the reconstructive surgery regime. And these trials show that if you spend a few weeks stretching and doing physiotherapy, you get the same endpoint as if you'd had the surgery. And that, that was... The first time, you know, I hadn't even started writing this book yet. I, and this, this book was just a kind of kind of scratch in my mind at the time. But I was really struck that you could have a torn ACL and a physician would say, I'm a non-interventionist about this. Um, and so that got me thinking like, well, I mean, it got me thinking a lot about the different themes that come up in the book. In short, one aspect of gentle medicine is a kind of modest version 
of non-interventionism. It's at least a kind of mitigated interventionism. It's uh, we should be intervening less frequently and using less invasive kinds of interventions. Um, a corollary to this is, well, we want to do something to improve our health. We want to do something to like offset disease and offset the harms caused by disease. So what should we do? Well, in the long history of medicine, we have really good reason to think that some of the great strides that we've made in society, like increased lifespan, um, decrease in uh, childhood mortality, these have come not from, from drugs or from surgeries, but from things like clean drinking water, uh, exercise, uh, washing your hands, washing your hands. Yeah. There's just an overwhelming mountain of evidence that things like, like, access to nutritional requirements um, improves our health much more than access to things like streptomycin. Um, and so that's a second aspect to gentle medicine. And a third is a kind of call for particular kinds of research. So we have really just a huge amount of evidence on and whether or not we think the evidence is any good. We have a huge volume of evidence on the benefits of pharmaceuticals we have a tiny amount of evidence about what it's like to come off pharmaceuticals. Um, you know, and many drugs, once we're on them, we're on them for life, like statins, blood pressure-lowering drugs, psychopharmaceuticals. You're on these drugs for many years. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of study, a, kind of with, a drug withdrawal study, where you have subjects who are on drugs, and then you take them off, and you observe the effects. Um, and we need a lot more evidence of that kind um, in order to be responsible non-interventionists. Um, so that's why you know the book is not closing by saying, "Yo, physicians, stop prescribing drugs." That would be totally irresponsible. Um, rather, it's saying, "Well, we should intervene less and less severely, but we also need more evidence about what it's like to intervene less." I guess today has been Jacob Steginger. His book is Medical Nihilism. Jacob, thanks for being part of EconTalk. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for the conversation. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.